Alright, beautiful, we are alive. We are alive. Hello! Can't wait to see more people hop on. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Hi, thanks for coming. Hi, my, hi, Terry. Okay, yeah, you guys are right on time. So we're just going to wait for a few more people to join. I know that lots of people are busy and so on, school and work. So we're just going to wait a little bit. Hi, Amoya. Thank you for joining. Thank you for joining. Hi. <laughs> You guys ready today, man? That's good, that's good. That's good. Alright. So yeah, guys, let me know how your day's been going so far. You know? Hi, Alana. I don't know about you guys, but it's been a hectic week. To say the least. But yeah guys, I'm excited about today. Very very excited. Oh no, you said you're tired, the road is so miserable. I'm sorry. Oh yes, I think tomorrow that's the day when workplace you should close half day to allow people to go out and shop and so on, stock up for Friday and Saturday. Yeah. So I hope you got to go to the supermarket beforehand. Yes. <laughs> oh, you said Friday? Okay. Alright. So again, guys, today we're going to talk about justice reform. What's that, you know? Why you not know people business? So yeah, we're gonna start shortly, but we're just waiting on a few more pieces. Oh, if something really cool happened this week, let me know. Wow. I just remember something else that happened cool over the weekend. We're definitely going to talk about it in Let's Talk About It. We have to, we have to. Alrighty, so we're going to start right, right now. So everyone, thank you for joining again. Thank you, welcome everyone. Welcome again to Ask Gabby Season 2. We're all the way in Season 2, guys. Episode Seven. We've been doing this for a while, so thank you again for coming out and for joining. So right now, you know what we have. We have, let's talk about it. The first thing, it happened, it happened over the weekend, Saturday, I believe. I'm not sure if many of you heard or you saw, but there was a video over the weekend. It looks like a meteor, right? A meteor, a meteor, that thing from space, the big huge rock. 
came down and it landed somewhere in Jamaica. It looked like it was around the somewhere close to the sea view area. So there's a video online on Twitter, you know, everybody, courtesy of Twitter. Hi, thanks for joining. So when you saw that video, you saw the mass like come from space. So you know it was nighttime, it was dark. You just saw this this like ball almost looking like this ball of fire descending and it looked like when it almost hit the ground now you saw the huge orange glow so that whoa that's so cool for some reason i haven't heard anything else about it i am hoping the air is okay i'm hoping that residents are okay but i find that strange something landing here i nobody nobody's talking about it's like when that plane crashed and that was that really <laughs> you said it's a ufo uh, listen a lot of people are joking about it they're saying hey it's superman hey it's aliens they're like oh goodness what else is going to happen so i thought that was so cool so whatever that was i'm assuming it's a meteor i'm assuming that was pretty pretty cool that touched down here okay i'm not too sure about that i'm not too sure about that so that's one, the meteor. If you guys want to see the video of it, let me know and I can definitely share the link. The second thing now is actually pretty interesting. I saw it today. So Atlanta Terrellong, he was in an article, I think, from Loop News. It was dated March 22nd, so that was Monday. He was saying that right now with the pandemic going on and everything, a lot of boys are affected by schooling. They're affected by schooling. So when they're in their communities, he's like, hey, as an MP, and I go into my communities, the boys, they're just out on the road. They're just out on the road. Some of them just playing. But the girls, they're typically tucked away inside doing schoolwork. And he's saying, it's very sad and it's very unfortunate because in general, Jamaican society, before all of this was going on, if, let's say, at a co-ed school and so on, and maybe even um, all boys schools when boys were at schools and they wanted to sit at the front and they wanted to participate and they wanted to be nice to their teachers it was seen as being weak like no you have to be rough you have to be tough you know a lot of that toxic masculinity stuff and I found it interesting because some people were like no not no go so this doesn't happen and other people are like obviously you did not experience that but other males are saying we experienced this going to high school going to university and he also said mr terrellong he said even for let's say co-ed schools now if the guys if they're nice and they're respectful to their other female classmates the guys are like brother where the pardon like no this is not the way it really is so I just found that so sad that that's generally the attitude, the, the behavior. Well, I went to an all-girls school, so it's, I didn't experience it, but it's not surprising because if you look at wider society and how young men act, yeah, so that's, that's sad. And I hope within your communities, if you see the guys just out on the road and not necessarily staying in class, like, drape them up a, a bit, you know, like, bad them up a little bit and be like, hey, go inside go to your classes you can play afterwards so that was the other thing the third thing now because i know you guys you're excited you come for our speaker and everything and what we're going to talk about the third thing is that apparently today 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 um 
I'm going to call it there's been a vaccine freeze. Hi Javante, thanks for coming. There's been a vaccine freeze. What do I mean by that? Let me tell you what I mean. So India, you know, they produce large batches of the AstraZeneca vaccine. So because of the surge the surges, the rises um in COVID cases they're putting a halt on their shipments they're like okay we're not going to export these vaccines to anybody and everybody right now we're going to hold on to what we have so i find that rather concerning i don't know more details if anybody knows let me know i don't know if that means that certain shipments that were supposed to go out i don't know if they're going to disregard that or they're still going to honor those shipments send them out and maybe if people if they're putting other orders maybe they're going to stop that so I'm just glad that we have some of our vaccines under the COVAX facility, that system. So that's that. So at least Jamaica has some about our vaccines. Trinis, I'm not too sure about you guys. But alright everyone, that was the let's talk about it section. We spoke about the, me the meteor strike, right? What Mr. Terrell said about boys in education, especially right now, as well as the COVID vaccine freeze. So now... We're going to add our guest to the chat, Matthew Williams. If you guys don't know who Matthew Williams is, then that's pretty sad. I'm going to add him shortly when he rejoins. Okay, Matthew is here, so we're going to... Okay, and if you guys don't remember, in like the first season of Ask Gabby, if you were here and you saw the comments, you would have seen that Matthew, he was always giving some legal advice or some legal perspective. Mm -hmm. Hi, Matt. Hi, Gabrielle. What's going on? Hi. Thanks for joining. Thanks for coming. Yeah, man. So, yeah. I'm happy to be here. Okay, so Matt, tell the people who you are. Who is Matthew Williams? What do you do? All right. Um, as mentioned, my name is Matthew Williams. I am a third-year law student, Faculty of Law, UWE Mona. Um, yeah, I, I pretty much facilitate discussion, discourse in relation to whether it be legal reform, policy discussions, and so forth. I'm an, I'm an avid environmentalist. And yes. that, yeah, it informs a lot. <laughs> it informs a lot of what it is that um, I, I do and say. Well, yeah, that's, that's pretty much me in a nutshell. Okay, thank you. Thanks for telling us that for everybody. That's Matthew. So, Matt, when I posted the flyer and everything, I asked people, hey, when you hear about justice system reform, what comes to mind? Off the bat, people are like, okay, more accountability. Someone said quicker justice. So, for instance, from people being... um arrested or so on to actually going to court and all of that some of the people are like hey we actually need to see things happening and not just having people be in the system and getting lost in the system so right. when you hear justice system reform what comes to your mind all right well i'd agree with with all the responses that were given um but i would also add that justice reform starts at the core place where it is that we find legal reform and that's in parliament I think that um, parliamentary procedure is one of the, the key factors that has often been neglected in Jamaica. You'll find that um, if you look at the, the, the parliamentary um, decisions, 
legal reform mm-hmm. that have taken place in a year, it's pretty paltry. And that's why you'll find that we're quite behind in a lot of the key legislative reform areas. So, for example, um, Minister Samuda in 2017, I believe, would have been leading a charge to increase the monetary fines. And a couple years later, we're still not where we should be because you still have fines for pretty serious acts that attract a very paltry sum. So if we look at, for example, something that was topical, and I saw a petition for it on the Office of the Prime Minister's website in relation mm-hmm. to um, the backyard lighting of fires and, of course, the imminent danger that it causes to buildings. Um, currently, the Country Fires Act, which is the guiding legislation um, in relation to those particular actions, attracts a grand fine of $500 if you're wow. caught in intervention of it. That hasn't been reformed as yet. And furthermore, the act does not have any provisions for persons dwelling within the corporate area. So for some strange reason, legislators um, way back when felt that, you know, it's highly unlikely that you'll have fires in, in Kingston. But we've seen enough to say, you know, that that's not necessarily the case. So I think that justice reform starts definitely in Parliament. Yes, we should be thinking of um, quicker turnover times in relation to court proceedings. But I think as well that there ought to be some some real robust discussion as well in terms of the role that advocacy groups play in the whole aspect mm-hmm. of justice reform. Because it's not just, okay, parliament, and, and, and that's where the book starts and ends. Um, advocacy groups play a key role in... Uh, legislative reform. So you'll find that a lot of the loopholes and a lot of the, the um, existing lacunae, meaning gaps in the law, that we have are oftentimes identified by these advocacy groups. So we need to begin bolstering and strengthening the advocacy groups that exist currently, as opposed to simply leaving it up to Parliament. Final point, Gary, because I know I'm going on now, is that we need to we need to, of course, begin to have discussions with our local MPs to have them bring in more private members' motions as opposed to waiting for a joint select committee to be called or a task force to be called in relation to a particular okay. Hold on, Matt. So for people who don't know what private members' motions are, just tell them what that is. Okay, so a private member motion is a motion from a member of parliament that doesn't necessarily fall within the remit of the general procedure in which parliamentary um, parliamentary amendments are brought. Typically, they're brought by ministers um, with responsibility, but you'll find that um, under the current standing orders, meaning the the rules that guide parliament, um, a member of parliament, meaning a local MP, is quite fit and capable to bring before Parliament a particular act or um, a motion to amend an act or to introduce a brand new act. So that's basically it, in a nutshell. Okay, so thanks so much. You actually just touched on a lot of points and we're definitely going to delve into them Mm -hmm. later. But there is a key point, well, two key points I think about when I hear about justice system reform. So... One of them is that I hear about, I've heard about it in Jamaica quite a bit, um, the case backlog that we have. That's mm-hmm. one. And two, I've heard about youth in the prison system, so juvenile detention. Can you tell us more about those? 
right. <laughs> okay. Those are very touchy topics. Um, all right. So let, let's start with the whole aspect of um, children in, in, in prison, juvenile reform centers. Um, so it's been, it's been an issue for years, years on end. Uh, part of it stems from the current Child Care and Protection Act, specifically Section 24, which notes that a parent or guardian can bring a child before a juvenile court and have the court take the child into state custody or place the child in a correctional facility provided that the child demonstrates what is termed uncontrollable behavior. Um, that's a very wide term. The major okay. problem with that is that there's no definition within the act as to what okay. or who, right, who or what an uncontrollable child is or how it is that an uncontrollable child manifests himself. Currently, it's left up to law enforcement um, and the administrators of correctional facilities, and in many cases, the parents and guardians of the child to make that determination. So it's almost as simple as, I'm tired of having this child in my house. Um, this child is demonstrating maladapt maladaptive behavior, and you take the child to court. Court says, okay, no problem, and they place him in a correctional facility. The problem with that is that correctional facilities were never meant to hold persons that haven't been convicted of a crime. And an uncontrollable child is not a child who has actually committed a crime so-called. Um, furthermore, there is an absence of a link between, of course, the Child Protection and Family Service Services Agency and the Department of Correctional Services. When you place someone in the Department of Correctional Services, they're under the control of DCS. And that cannot be the case for a minor under the state. So there are many, many issues. Um, I think recently there was a discussion on social media about a child that was actually locked up um, in, in, thought, in, yeah. right, in a jail. He was actually having a seizure and they couldn't find the key mm -hmm. for, the, for the, um, the particular holding cell. So it, it's a part of the problem. Another thing to consider, um, and I, I note the questions that are coming up, but I'll just make this quick point and then probably you can facilitate those, um, Gabby. Mm -hmm. Up to you, of course. Yeah. Another point to consider is that when we begin to have this discussion about uncontrollable children, is that we're delving now into the realm of what you call status offenses. So those are offenses that are simply granted by virtue of age or gender or six. Um, so let me give you an example. Currently, if a adult, let's say your parent exhibits maladaptive behavior, you cannot bring that parent and have them locked up. So therefore, it is ridiculous that we believe that a child that exhibits maladaptive behavior ought to be in prison. Oh, I get you, right. yeah. So under the United Nations guidelines for the prevention of juvenile delinquency, shortly called the um, RIDA guidelines, um, which we are signatories to in Jamaica, it prohibits expressly status offenses. So essentially, there's a massive disconnect between the idea of a child being in prison and mm -hmm. that of him actually having committed a crime. And let me tell you where things get tricky. The question is, what happens to the child who is in the lockup, who escapes the lockup. 
According to DCS, that child would have then committed um, an offence, which is then li- which then makes them liable to imprisonment, which is of course wow. problematic. If I have not committed a crime and I'm not really there for that purpose, which is you know the idea of a commission of a crime itself, how can I then be charged? something for escaping somewhere that I ought not to have been in the first place so it's a massive wow. problem um, and I just want to stress that status offenses essentially drive a wedge between what we would consider to be human rights and the yeah. rights of the child um, I would stress that human rights are no different from the rights of a child the same rights that are granted to um, Adults should be granted to children outside, of course, the scope of um, certain sexual reproductive rights that may exist, such as the, the right to, to give consent and so forth. I believe that that should still be limited under the, the current guidelines that exist. Um, of course, and there's a raging debate as to whether we should increase the age of consent, but I won't touch on that. Um, but yes, there, there are serious problems in the incidents where children who are slated to do CSEC exams. And I would encourage everyone to read Capri's 2018 report on the Rio Cobra Juvenile Detention Center. Um, In the report, it notes that there are students who actually had been slated to sit their CSEC exams. And because they were deemed to be too bright by the correctional officers, they were barred from sitting their exams. Um, Which, of course, as you know, as exactly as any um, student who has sat CSEC or CAPE would know, um, if you miss the exam, it's a failed absence, um, yeah. ungraded essentially. So we need to have a wider discussion as to why it is that we are going this route. I know that um, Minister um, Robert Nestor Morgan had indicated that he was going to be taking up the mantle. We haven't heard anything about that as yet. And I believe that CPFSA needs to, to step up um, its game as well and really and truly begin utilizing the advocacy arm that it has to begin making the necessary substantive changes because it cannot continue. Um, if there is no connection between Department of Correctional Services and CPFSA, it means then that the children are left at the mercy of the correctional officers who are trained and are essentially known to deal with some of the most violent um, offenders that we have in the country. We can't have these same that persons might, dealing with children. Exactly. It's ridiculous. And that might eventually turn them into criminals that they actually aren't. Exactly. So we're creating an, an almost irreversible cycle, a consistent cycle that will never end unless we begin to make the necessary reforms in relation to, um, to, to and, and the funny part is, you know, I'll stress this, funny part is, um, in 2015, I believe, there were two orders that were drafted. One was the care order, and one was the antisocial behavior order. Both were meant to, one, remove the uncontrollable designation from law, um, and two, to provide a, a, a sort of systematic um, method of dealing with the whole idea of children being imprisoned, um, as well as providing a more comprehensive look into state care and what it should yeah. look like. Unfortunately, the orders haven't been completed, nor have they been um, 
called into force as yet. And uh, quite frankly, if at this point we're still contemplating new legislation instead of working on the orders which we already started in 2015, it's problematic. Okay, and Matt, just noting a question. So based on everything that we just heard, someone, she asked if we have any other child intervention programs that really work, since obviously this isn't working. All right. In terms of child intervention programs, they fall so, um, solely within the remit of uh, um, CPFSA. To their credit, however, to their credit, I noticed that as recently as I believe this week, they were making calls to actually have um, 150 new foster parents coming forward to sort of mm. the burden. So that's, that's to their credit. The second thing that CPFSA has done is that they're also um, lobbying the government currently to make the whole matter of adoption much easier. So that when a parent comes and they have an uncontrollable child or, or a child that exhibits maladaptive behavior, that child can be placed in the hands of a loving family as opposed to being placed in a cell. That um, makes sense. Yeah, so... Yeah. Um, but otherwise, there are there are there are advocacy groups that have um, sought to have sought to actually assist in this regard, whether it be through providing mentorship, um, visits, um, trying to assist with schooling. I can think of one off the top of my head, which is um, Friends of a Child Foundation. They they do some amazing work in relation to to children. Um, you have, of course. Um, human rights and, and children's rights advocates such as Susan Goff, who consistently champion the cause. So there are, there are entities and people working. What we need to get, however, is more mainstream attraction to the matter, as opposed to being a nine-day wonder and then everybody forgets. So for example, to just give out an example of this nine-day wonder, I'm sure most of us would have forgotten the horrendous prison conditions that a lot of general inmates are kept in. There was a picture leaked of, um, I think his name was Noel Chambers, where he was basically skin and bone. The picture was circulating mm -hmm. on social media. I'm sure many of us forget it. And these are the things that, you know, they come up, there's initial shock factor, and then we forget about them. When really and truly what we need is sustained pressure on the government and private sector entities as well to begin making the necessary changes. Because at the end of the day, it's not a government issue. It's our issue. True. Okay, so someone else said lost in the system. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and, and that's the reality. A lot of persons do get lost in the system. Um, part of it arises because in many cases they don't have family members. Um, in some cases, it's just a matter of having a, a delayed court system. But I want to stress um, because... There is there is some credit that is due to the judiciary of Jamaica. They've they've made strident steps to sort of decrease the backlog in cases that we have. Um, okay. And of course, when we get to that section, I'll speak on it. But all right, that's that's what I have for now in relation to yeah, that. Yeah, you can go right ahead into that, man. All right, no problem. Okay, so we're talking about case backlog, right? Now, for years, Jamaica has had a problem with. Um, the cases that we have in the system that have not yet been resolved but for many many years part of it is in due 
part of it is due to one the record amount of cases that we have coming before the courts and two the lack of judges that we have sitting on the benches um oh. so when we look at 2020 oh another report that have us i would suggest that we all read every year and every quarter the chief justice issues an, a report on the happenings of all the courts he would have actually just issued yeah man you can look on the supreme court website he would have just issued um the annual report for 2020 and so some of what i'll be presenting to you today are actual statistics from that so when we look at the aggregate um new case count, meaning new cases in the year 2020 we had a, a total amount of 21,166 cases this is down by 20.94% when compared to the 26,771 new cases in, nine, in 2019. So this is the third consecutive year of decline, and that's in part due to a lot of reasons. Part of it is because the government would have recently made the move towards plea bargaining. There's been a more strident um, push in relation to the use of... Um, dispute resolution methods as opposed to going straight to the court system. And we've also increased the amount of judges on the bench. Um, and I'll touch on all of those as I go through. Now, the overall disposal rate, which is, which is essentially the date of entry of the case and when it is that the case is actually dealt with and set aside, um, in 2020 was 64.57%. Now, that's, that's pretty impressive given where we're coming from when we're in the 40% region in about 2010. But mm. it's still a decrease from 2019. We're down 9.18 percentage points um, when compared to 2019. Um, the standard clearance rate for all parish courts, with the exception of the criminal division of the corporate area parish courts, is at 90%, which is very good. That's a standard, the international standard. So the rate of reduction um, over the past 12 months, meaning 2020, the entire year, has been predictably strong. Um, we've had a monthly reduction of some 9.26% in the case backlog in one year. Um, that's very, very impressive. And it means that there are some things being done in relation to tackling the problem. I think that the broader consideration to have is, of course, the techniques that I would have mentioned that are being used. So every attorney now and everyone that works in government who plays some role in judicial matters will tell you that the best route to go, your first route should not be the court system. Use oh. alternative dispute resolution methods first. Because we'll find that there are a lot of cases that come before the courts that don't necessarily need the court's intervention. Meaning that you, the person, and a JP could sit down in a petty session and simply resolve the matter. Or you, the person, Question. and a attorney. Go ahead. Yeah, do many JPs do that though? I think I mainly know JPs, if you want something signed, you just go to them and sign it. I don't hear them recommending, hey, come to me. Don't just go mm -hmm. straight to the court. Come to me and let's exactly. sort this out first. And, and that's the prop. That's part of the problem. I wow. know that there was a drive in 2017 for JPs to actually become part of a training program for ADR, mm -hmm. Alternative Dispute Resolution Methods. 
the problem with that was that one, a lot the internal. Um, two, oh, wow. the, the 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 fact is even outside the JPs, persons aren't at this point accustomed to utilizing the ADR methods that are actually available, and that's problematic. Now, most JPs that actually um, sign up. Um, for the program and so forth will not stress the availability. So it's all good and well that you actually have the qualifications, but mm -hmm. have they gone as far as to advertise within their communities to say, listen, if you have this problem, I am supposed to be your first point of contact. And so JP's roles essentially don't they're not advertised. Unless you're reading the legislation to recognize that they're actually the ones that should be hosting petty court sessions, you most likely would know. And then we'll have the additional problem, which is that because JPs aren't necessarily compensated by the government, um, they oh. turn to, of course, persons for a form for some compensation to mediate in matters, or in some cases, just assign documents. And so that presents a wider problem. Because if it is that someone has to go to a JP and then pay for that mediation to take place, problematic. Okay, quick comment. Someone said these JPs expect to get money corrupt. And someone said, I agree, JPs' roles aren't advertised. But... <sighs> Is it really corrupt though? Can there some can there be something put in place to compensate them at least somewhat? Because that's a lot of work to be expecting someone to do for free, I would say. Definitely. Um I, I agree that that is definitely the route that we should be going to. Let's not kid the role of a JP. It's not a walk in the park, it's not just um signing a couple of documents. Or at least for those that do work, it's not just signing yeah. a couple of documents. JPs are selected because they hold influence in their community. In some cases, and I agree with the, the comment coming from Maureen A. Um, that's my mom, by the way, guys. Um, oh, hi! <laughs> <laughs> right, that most JPs actually grab the post for some amount of prestige. And they actually do the bare minimum. And it becomes problematic because what we should be aiming for is having JPs that want the job because they want to make a difference in their communities, as opposed to it being a financial venture where they can seek to profit through backdoor deals. Um, but nevertheless, fully agree, there should be some some um, um, there should be some allowance for JPs as they carry out their duties, and this helps to to reduce corruption. That, that that's just the truth. If a JP, because I've seen it happen multiple times where JPs sign documents for persons that they've never met in their lives, kind of retards the position of a JP if it is that they're doing these things when really exactly, <laughs> exactly. So those are the things that we need to begin to, to, to tackle. Um, okay, on Matt, just one other quick question. Someone said earlier, I know you were talking about that overall, overall for the past few years, cases have been declining. However, right. someone was asking, could the fact that we still have so many cases be due to like the police officers not doing their jobs properly, for instance, reports and investigations that need to be presented? All right. And I don't want to offend any any officer. <laughs> um, 
Talk, man, it's okay. Yeah, man. Um, I, I'll say this. I will say this. You would have heard the DPP um, and deputy DPPs in the past complain about the the fact that when it comes on to um, cases that the prosecution has to carry, there's oftentimes a difficulty that they face because of incorrect charges being laid against the persons or the police going as far as to make arrests without first consulting the office of the DPP. Um, in many cases, you will find as well that a part of the problem is that there is a corruption of evidence while it is in police lockup. So to give you a, a, an example, one of the, the big stumbling blocks that the prosecution faced in the um, Vibes Cartel case was that it was asserted by um, defense counsel that the mm -hmm. cell phone that was used as a key um, exhibit was in fact tampered with while it was in police lockup. As a matter of fact, it, the, the chain of custody was uh, in reality broken. And so for that reason, I believe that it shouldn't be admissible. That, of course, is a pending case, which I, I won't comment on. I'm, I have my own personal views on it. But nevertheless, there is some reform that needs to be done in terms of how it is that police officers are educated in relation to the law. It cannot be that you can become a police officer in probably what, a year and uh, or two years and you're expected to know the full gamut of the law and how it mm -hmm. ought to be applied when you have law students, for example, that spend five years just to be able to have a decent understanding of the law. So we need to begin having regular training sessions for police officers. Mm -hmm. So that when the time comes, they're, they're not caught you know, in a situation where the incorrect charge was laid or the chain of command, chain of custody was broken and so forth. So yes, police do play a part in, in of course, the case backlog, um, as well as the fact that defense counsel, in my opinion, sometimes assist in the case backlog by filing meaningless motions, um, failure to turn up for the court. That's a major problem as well. Um, in many cases, extending... Um, the, the, the courts or wasting the court's time in my opinion by taking a matter that could have simply gone through mediation or arbitration um, to the court and having a judge having to sit and then refer you to the appropriate method. It indicates a lack of consideration for the court's time and in my opinion, my humble opinion, um, it indicates that there is a, a, a love essentially for the, the, the ad adversarial nature of the courtroom by attorneys as opposed to going the route exactly as opposed to going the route of just sitting down and having amicable decent conversation all right cool and just to note one other comment maureen a said we need to encourage younger persons into the role of of a jp you know i've really never thought about being a jp or telling my friends, hey, go and become a JP. <laughs> go and become a JP. So that's pretty interesting. Okay, yeah, and someone else said, for the police now, this is in relation to what you said, they're expected mm -hmm. to read a special book and go through sessions on special days. Do they adhere to the law is another question. Wow. Yeah, and, and that's strong. a fair comment. That's a fair comment. Um, the adherence to the law is one thing. And I think that there is a bit of... Um, rashness that takes place in relation to how swiftly police are willing to charge. 
Um, but that is, of course, due to several factors from um, ranging from just a lack of experience to simply a refusal to be patient. And, and that's something that with adequate training, it, it can be resolved. Um, but yeah, I, I think definitely police officers, attorneys lend to the um, backlog that we have. And there is, a, a, and citizens in general, I mean, somebody took your car and so forth, and you decide <laughs> you're going to go into, Yeah, you're going to go, I mean, come on, man, come on. Fine, even if the person, even if the person ran off, right? Then that's, that's fine. I can understand a court session for that. But somebody comes... Um and and you and the person get into a fight and your first move is to go to court, when in reality you can have some mediation, set aside the differences and move on. There's no need to waste the court's time. As a matter of fact, let me give you some statistics. Thirty percent of the court cases that um that that went before not thirty percent, fifteen percent of the court cases that went before um parish courts were in relation to petty offences. 15%. Wow. So, I mean, at the end of the day, we really and truly as citizens need to become more aware and, and maybe it's also the government and attorneys and the judiciary's fault for not advertising and speaking more about alternative dispute measures. But those need to be the first one that we go to as opposed to, of course, taking the route of, all right, let's go straight to court and fight it out for seven months. All right, Matt. So we have a few more questions and comments. Someone, she's asking, do you think that much justice would be served if a case is dismissed? Maybe on the third mention because of lack of evidence. Okay. It depends on what your, your normative, normative view of justice is. Okay. Let me put it this way. So legally, this is how it works. The prosecution has to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. Now, the defense only has to prove on a balance of probabilities. The greater burden is on the prosecution. So if there is okay. even, a, if there's even a, a gap in what they present, then there's a no case submission that will be made. Now, in terms of having the case dismissed because of a lack of evidence on the third try, I think that it probably would fit, dependent on, of course, which lens you're viewing it from. Surely, as the aggrieved member, you're going to think that justice hasn't been served. In the eyes of the law, it would have been, because the prosecution would have failed in its attempt to prove to the court beyond a reasonable doubt. I would suggest, however, that in terms of what our normative views of justice should be, that they're inherently based on our moral concepts and our, our own sense of what is essentially right and what is wrong. But yeah. I would also say that there is a, thing, a very old case that justice must not only be done, it must appear to be done. So the, the optics of our judgments oftentimes 
change the perception of whether or not justice has been served. So yes, um, my answer to that then, in, in typical legal fashion, is it depends. It depends, wow. Okay, yeah. so someone else, just a comment based on the police officers. Police officers. This person says, a lot of them have knowledge but refuse to use it because they are underpaid. That's bad. Okay. Yeah, and again, that, that's another discussion that we need to have in relation to exactly how much we pay civil servants in general, um, specifically our police officers, um, medical professionals, and so forth. There ought to be, and teachers as well, there is, uh, there is room for that discussion. I believe that the ladies and gentlemen in, in red who put their lives on the line every day ought to be compensated in a in, in a livable manner. It shouldn't be that, you know, a, an officer has to resort to means of left or right in relation to ticketing someone or um, resorting to, to other underhanded means. And I'm not saying that an increase in pay will necessarily wipe out all corruption within the police space, but I would say that it might help in terms of having police officers told the line because they're satisfied with the amounts that they have um, so definitely, discussions need to, to take place in relation to how well um, police officers are compensated. Okay, thank you so much. In wrapping up, just tell us one other aspect of the justice system that you think needs reform. Okay. All right, I'll, I'll touch on a topical one. Um, okay. So I, I, think, I think given COVID-19, there is need for discussion in relation to our labor laws. Let me put that in context. So, and I'll say this generally for everyone to know, and this is something that, you know, as boarding professionals, we should all take into our, our workspace. Yeah. Did you know that your employer is not required to give you paid sick leave in the first five months of employment? And that includes even if you have been diagnosed to have COVID-19. It is also discretionary for your employer under the current labor laws. And by labor laws, I mean the Employment Act, the Holiday with Pays Act, um, and of course our sick leave regulations. If you are asymptomatic, your employer is under no obligation to have you um, register under sick leave or paid sick leave for that matter. Um, if you are symptomatic, it might be um, consequential for the, the employer to definitely say yes and so forth. Therefore, you know, there is an avenue for such. But currently under the existing framework, you are not able to utilize the sick leave provisions that we have under law in relation to COVID-19. And that's problematic. That's part of the reason why we have so many persons that are actually turning up to work even though they know that they have COVID-19 because their employer will make threats such as, well, if you don't turn up to work, then I'm going to view it as you've walked off the job. Or you don't have a job when you turn up tomorrow. And the reality is the employer is well within his rights to do this because the current labor laws do not address this problem. Um, so, for example, the labor code, which is over 40 years old, I believe, um, and most of our labor laws, which are decades old, 
provide very little in relation to the modern circumstances that we face. And I note um, that there have been attorneys such as Gavin Goff who have been calling for the government to begin making the necessary amendments to the existing sick leave laws and um, labor laws to ensure that citizens can access um, the sick leave provisions in the event that they're asymptomatic or symptomatic, as well as in the event that they have to be acting as caregivers for persons that do have COVID-19. So for example, your husband has COVID-19, should you not be able to stay home and care for him Especially given the fact that if your husband has COVID-19, it's highly likely that you will um, contract it as well. Or if your children have it, or if your grandmother has it, or your grandfather, there should be provisions given the nature of um, this particular virus and so forth. So our labor laws need desperate reform in that um, regard. And then my second area of contention, which I had to include because, like I said in the beginning, I'm an environmentalist. <laughs> Um, I think it's really time that we ratify the Escazu Agreement. Now, the Escazu Agreement is, and of course, Gabby, you know about the Escazu Agreement, but I'll just um, give a synopsis of it. The Escazu Agreement is a revolutionary piece of, um, well, I'm not saying legislation, it's, a, it's actually a treaty um, for the Latin America and the Caribbean, wherein it provides at its core greater involvement on the part of the citizenry in relation to actions taken by the government that will require um, some environmental degradation um, or deforestation or any environmental matter that rises to a level where it ought to be in the public interest. Now, you'd have, re you'd have realized the difficulty that a lot of environmentalists face in the recent dry harbor debacle exactly in getting the government to actually speed the discussions that were taking place, as well as the, the cries from the citizens in the area. The SCARSW agreement would actually make it mandatory that the government consult with the citizens before taking any environmental, um, before deciding to take any action that would affect the environment. And those are the, the direct, that's the direction that we ought to be going into. So currently, um, Gabby, if then, if the, the government decides that you know we're going to get up and um, clear out the forest next to you where you live. Knock on the wood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're they well within their rights too because there's nothing that requires them to essentially consult with you as a citizen. They can consult. Wow. The developers can consult with anyone that they need, if it, whether it be NEPA or any environmental impact agency. But there's no requirement on the law for them to, to consult with citizens before making the necessary changes. And of course, within the larger context in terms of our domestic laws, um, the Town and Planning Act, which, I, which is another piece of legislation that, that is in need of reform, um, currently does not require planning permission for government buildings. So if you want to build a house or you have an establishment, Gabby, that you want to establish in Kingston or anywhere, you have to go through, whether it be parish council for your house or you have yeah. to go through um, the existing um, laws in relation to consultation before carrying out a project within the corporate area. The government, however, is under no obligation to do so. So what does that mean in simple terms? That's not fair, man. Exactly. So it means then that the government can get up, they can 
build a 10-story a, a, a building with zero trees around it um, or even clear out an entire forest without having to seek planning permission. Whereas a corporate wow. agency or corporate set of executives would have to receive planning permission. And part of that planning permission would be the requirement to, of course, have some green spaces. That's not the same for the government. So the Escazo Agreement as the treaty, the international treaty, is going to provide a means through which we're able to have a wider discussion in terms of the citizens' role in environmental procedures, as well as in our domestic law, changing the way that we go about granting permission for building the papers. And of course, there's the whole access to information bit, um, which um, Kari would have brought up, content of Lyle. Reality is, um, getting information from the government through an access to information request is like pulling teeth, and it shouldn't be that way. So the Escazo Agreement addresses this and actually provides that there ought to be an existing database easily and freely accessible to the citizens um, so that they can see. Yeah, yeah, is that also another reason why journalists, they also work so hard? Aren't they more... I know they use the Access to Information Act a lot to try and find those information. So right. maybe they're like, you know, they're like the fourth pillar of the state. So maybe they're, they're like in between us, you know. So even if it's like pulling teeth for us, they go on behalf of us and they try and they get that information. Right. But in reality, you know, and that's true. But in reality, that's not how it ought to be. Part of good governance is that there ought to be transparency. And the transparency doesn't just mean that it starts and stops at media agencies. But that okay. every citizen, by virtue of being a citizen, ought to be able to access the information that concerns them, access information that influences them. I think sometimes we forget that elected officials are just that, elected <laughs> officials and, and so forth. And therefore, they have a responsibility to actually listen to what it is that we have to say. And we have a right to speak to them about what concerns us and to request whatever information we need. Um, an ATI request shouldn't be like pulling teeth. It should just be a case where I have made the request so long as it doesn't infringe, um, say, a company's right to privacy or, or private communications. It should be accessible to every citizen. That's how it should be. Okay, so Matt, again, thank you for coming and talking to us. I learned a lot from you today. Thank you. Someone else also said, yes, Labor Laws Act, that we should do a whole session on this. We might have to bring you back. This is like the second person asking for a session on Labor Laws. And everyone, thank you so much for coming yeah. out and for learning with us. Yeah, man, Matt, you really brought down the information for us, for those of us who don't study for us to actually know what's okay. going on and where the gaps are okay thank you so okay. much Gabby. pleasure to be here no and great program that you have going on thank you all right okay so everyone yeah so everyone thank you again for coming for joining as well as remember or ask gabby right opportunities section Remember that each week we showcase opportunities that we know about this week. Unfortunately, I don't have one, but if you have something, definitely come. You say you teach him. All right. Thank you. He did really well. He did really well. So thank you for all that you've been doing. So everyone, thank you for coming out.
Thank you. Thank you, Auntie. Thank you for coming out. Thank you for joining and definitely share this with someone so that they can learn about what's going on. All right. Bye. Just enjoy the rest of your evening. Oh, thank you. <laughs> bye.